Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we come to you on your Sabbath day, these holy hours, in the very early morning, Lord, because we are seeking for bread. Lord, we want the sustenance from heaven. I pray that you will energize us for this day. And for this moment, Lord, as we open up your word, give us a message for each one of us individually. Send us your Holy Spirit. We know you are here. Help us, Lord, to be changed as we study your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So our theme for this week is surrender, moment by moment, surrender. You know, as I um, took on the role of leadership for SWIC years ago, it was a moment where I had to absolutely surrender everything that was meaningful to me. And by that, I mean I had to surrender myself, my desires, my hopes, my dreams, because God had something different in mind. I didn't know it at that time. But what I have realized is that surrender is as important as the act of surrender is. It is meaningless if we don't know why. So this morning, we're going to look at a story in the Bible and learn maybe something a little surprising about the purpose of surrender. And if there's one thing that we fail to surrender, it may actually set us up for failing in other areas. Is that something we want to know? Let's take our Bibles and go to one of my absolute favorite books, which is the book of Daniel. Daniel chapter 1. Now for young people, and for all, if there's one book in the Bible that you need to study, you need to study all of them, but if there's one, I would recommend the book of Daniel. So let's look at this story. It's a familiar story, and you're probably already thinking, oh, I know what you're going to say. Well, you, maybe you do, but that's okay. We're going to review it again as we talk about surrendering for a purpose. So Daniel chapter 1, and we're going to read much of this chapter together in verses 1 and 2. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, came Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, unto Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with part of the vessels of the house of God, which he, king Nebuchadnezzar, carried into the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and he brought the vessels into the treasure house of his God. We're familiar with the background of the story. Israel had been rebelling against God. In fact, we know King Jehoiakim was actually a wicked king. And though God had sent prophets and messages to them time and time, yet they rebelled. And finally, God said, there's only one way to get you back to me. And so he sent the Babylonians to 
defeat them, to take them captive, and not only that, but to take the very precious vessels from the, the temple, take them away, and they were defiled by being put in the house of the pagan gods. And to Israel, to the Jews, this was probably one of the worst things that could ever happen because now their entire identity was destroyed. It was a long march to the land of Shinar, to Babylon. In fact, what the, the um, I guess, archaeologists believe is that they would have traveled not directly straight from Jerusalem to Babylon because that would have taken them through the desert but they would have gone a circuitous route, going along the river, trying to stay closer to the, to the uh, land of, of uh, you know, plush, and so that they, because they, they were walking, most of them, right? So this journey would have taken probably about six months. So think about the Israelites who had been captured, walking, they were not allowed to ride at the horses, I'm sure. They didn't have the carriages. But they walked day after day for six months, taken to a foreign land. What do you think was going on through the mind of the Israelites at this time? What do you think it felt like? What were the thoughts, the emotions going through them? They were the chosen people of God, and yet they had been subjected and now treated as utter slaves, carried away with no hope. And they were brought to the city of Babylon. Have you ever wondered what Babylon was like at this time? Have you seen pictures, or have you seen what, what the archaeologists have found about Babylon? Babylon was an immense city. It was a square, and each side was 14 miles long. And in fact, it even spanned across the Euphrates River, and a bridge from one side to the other was half a mile long. How did they build a bridge half a mile across in those days? It was an immense, immense city. But not only that, but it was famed for having hanging gardens. Think about the Euphrates River providing all the water to grow everything. It was lush, beautiful. Now, what were the Israelites thinking as they were leaving the, 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 their travel path and coming and seeing Babylon open up before them with the lush beauty and garden, would they have been in awe of that sight? We know that there were eight massive gates. This is a replica of one of the gates from Babylon. Eight massive ones. There were two walls you had to go through to get to the city. The first wall was 300 feet wide and 25 feet it was a highway. The wall itself was a highway. Not only that, there were 250 towers. Have you been to LA? <laughs> 
seen any of the towers there? Is it not an impressive sight? Whether you like the city or not, it's an impressive sight, isn't it? 250 towers, 450 feet high. Not only that, but Babylon was a place of worship. Babylon was a spiritual place. In fact, it was so spiritual that it had 53 temples to various gods and simply to the goddess Ishtar, 150 altars. It was a place of worship. But it was a place of worship of many gods. In fact, Babylon would accept just about any god. If you had a god, he was welcome to join the club. And we would set up a tower or an altar, and yes, we'll include him or her in our worship. It was a place of spirituality, but of pagan false spirituality. Let's look at what the Bible says of Babylon. This is King Nebuchadnezzar's words in Daniel chapter 4 as he was gazing about on his beautiful creation that he had built. He says, the king spake, Is not this great Babylon that I have built for the house of the kingdom by the might of my power and for the honor of my majesty? And then not only that, but Isaiah says this, Babylon, the glory of kingdoms, the glory of kingdoms, the prophet of God is calling this city the glory of kingdoms, the beauty of the Chaldees' excellency. So life in Babylon, rich, luxurious, anything and everything that could stimulate your senses, a mixture of cultures, traditions and religions. In fact, the Babylons prided themselves in bringing in, importing everyone so that they could share their knowledge, their their learning, their skills, and their religion. But let's look and see at what happens to the children of God who come in. Reading now in verse 3. Verse 3. And the king, King Nebuchadnezzar, spake unto Ashpenaz, the master of his eunuchs, that he should bring certain of the children of Israel and of the king's seed and of the princess. So here the king is isolating the royal blood from Israel. Verse 4, children in whom was no blemish, well-favored, skillful in wisdom, cunning in knowledge, understanding science, and such as had ability to stand in the king's palace, and whom they might teach the learning and the tongue of the Chaldeans. So the king is looking for the cream of the crop here from the nation, and he wants to put them in his schools so that they will eventually become his servants in his court. Verse 5, here's the test. The king appointed them a daily provision of the king's meat and of the wine which he drank, so nourishing them three years 
that at the end thereof they might stand before the king. Now our heroes are introduced. Among these were of the children of Judah, remember that, Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, unto whom the prince of the eunuchs gave names. For he gave unto Daniel the name of Belteshazzar, and to Hananiah of Shadrach, and to Mishael of Meshach, and to Azariah of Abednego. So here's what the king was doing. He laid out certain criteria. He said these individuals, these young men, were to have no blemish. In other words, physically, they were strong. They were well-favored. They were skillful in wisdom, cunning in knowledge, understanding science. They were teachable. They were able to learn the language and ability ability to serve in the king's palace. These were those who passed every single possible test you can take to get into that Ivy League college, and they excelled. So let's look again at what the king did in summary. You see, what the king was doing is first he was changing their identity. Did you notice that? He changed their names. Especially in Israel, your name was a representation of who your parents wanted you to be, the characteristics that they desired for you. So the king is changing their name to represent Babylonian gods. Daniel, the name of Daniel means God is my judge. His name is changed to the servant of Baal. Next, The king gives them a specific task or a purpose or a reason for why they were there. They were to be educated and trained to serve him in his court. And he gave them a diet, the sustenance, meat and wine from his own table, from the king's table. So what did these young men do in verse 8 of Daniel 1? But Daniel, what? Purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's meat, nor with the wine which he drank. Therefore, he requested of the prince of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. Purposed. That key word, what does it mean? As a verb, it's used to mean you set yourself, you make something, you establish it, you determine that this is what you're going to do. As a noun, it means that it is the reason why you do something. So do you think that when Daniel as a verb purposed his, his heart, that he had a noun purpose in mind? He had to have a reason for making this decision. Now look again at what this young man, these young men were living through. They had been taken from their home. They were captive, they were slaves, they were 
eunuchs. What was a eunuch? A man who was castrated, meaning he could no longer have children. To an Israelite, what was the one heart's desire? To have the Messiah come from their line. And remember, these young men are from the house of Judah. So the Messiah could very well come from any one of them. But they had to surrender, whether willing or not, they had to surrender that deepest desire of being the progenitor of the Messiah. How much more would they need to give up? But here they are now. They have been selected carefully to become leaders in the government. And the first test that they are given is to eat from the king's table. Why in the world would they take this opportunity to potentially lose all the influence that they could have on this government? Why would they risk their very lives by saying, we won't eat that food, it's just food. God can purify it while you put it in your mouth. <laughs> Why would they refuse to give in on this little test? So what was his purpose? I have to believe that Daniel realized that there was a greatest pur greater purpose for him. He could no longer be the progenitor of the Messiah, but that's okay because maybe God has some other reason. I would argue that Daniel knew his scriptures and that he knew that if you were to look in Genesis, that he knew that there was another Israelite who was taken away from his home and family and made a slave and a captive. And he would have known the scriptures that said from Joseph, fear not for am I in the place of God, but as for you, he says to his brothers who put him in captivity, as for you, you thought evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring to pass for this purpose as it is this day to save much people alive. You see, Daniel knew that there was a greater purpose than his own heart's desires. In Prophets and Kings, in the land of their captivity, these men were to carry out God's purpose by giving to heathen nations the blessings that come through a knowledge of God of Jehovah they were to be his representatives you see they were not there to be the king's servants they were to be servants of the king of kings let's look again at the king's plan his identity was changed the king changed their identity he gave them a specific task and he changed their diet did you notice that Daniel did not object to his name change did you notice that 
Now, he calls himself Daniel every time he writes in this book, but he doesn't really object to changing the name. Did you notice that he does not object to the education itself? He knows he's learning pagan philosophy. He knows he's learning all the evils of the world. He doesn't necessarily object to that, but he objects to the diet. What was it about the diet that was so important to him? Prophets and Kings again, page 486. In acquiring the wisdom of the Babylonians, Daniel and his companions were far more successful than their fellow students, but their learning did not come by chance. They obtained their knowledge by the faithful use of their powers under the guidance of the Holy Spirit. They placed themselves in connection with who? The source of all wisdom, making what? The knowledge of God, the foundation of their education. You see, as long as you do that, you make God the foundation of our knowledge, it doesn't matter what anyone else adds because you are grounded in God. In faith, they prayed for wisdom. They lived their prayers. They placed themselves, here's the key, where God could bless them. And then they avoided that which would weaken their powers. And they improved every opportunity to become intelligent. So you avoid those that would weaken you and you take hold of the things that would help you. So, their task, their education, gave these individuals, these young men, the opportunity to identify themselves not as the servants of the king, but as the servants of God. So even though the king gave them, appointed them an identity, and appointed them a task, they utilized those to identify themselves as servants of God. By excelling in their studies, they could honor God, showing that he is the one true God. But if they were to give up their religion and their practice, then what would make them different? What would make them stand out? In order to achieve this purpose, they had to overcome the temptation to compromise their diet. So let's look quickly. Why is the diet so important? By the way, I'm a dietitian. So I can tell you scientifically why the diet is so important, but we want to see from the Word of God, why is the diet so important? Let's look again. The king's plan, right? Just as a reminder. What was God's plan? Well, in order to see this, we need to go to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 29. The story of creation as God creates human beings. Genesis 1, verse 26. And God said, let us make man in, what? Our image. What is the identity that God gave humanity? His image. 
his image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the fowl of the air, over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. What is the task that he gave them? Dominion. Verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, this is what you're going to do. Be fruitful, multiply, replenish the earth, subdue it, have dominion. And verse 29. And God said, behold, I have given you what? Every herb bearing seed which is upon the face of all the earth and every tree in the which is the fruit of a tree yielding seed to you, it shall be for meat. So let's look at the king's plan and God's plan. The king had given them an identity, an identity based on the Babylonian gods. But what was God's plan? His original plan was the image of God, his very likeness. The king gave them a purpose or a task. This is what you are going to do. What was that? Educate so that you will serve me. What was God's plan? Be fruitful multiply, replenish the earth, subdue it, and have dominion. You see, God didn't say, I want you to be my servant, like the king. He said, I want you to be someone who leads. I want you to have dominion. And the diet. The king gave them meat and wine from his table, but God gave them of the garden. It's interesting that what God had originally intended in our identity, in our purpose, and in our diet, the same three things are what King Nebuchadnezzar had changed for his benefit. But there's more to this story, isn't there? We know that the first, the very first battle on the planet Earth was lost. Why? It's just something, just take one bite. Just take one bite. We also know that even though there were men and women who were called righteous by God, Noah, who saved the planet from utter destruction because his family obeyed, and yet, immediately following the flood, he gave into liquor. And his shame brought sin on his children as well. We also know that Esau, who was to receive the birthright from his father, but at a moment of utter hunger, he says to his brother, Give me the food that you're making. And his brother Jacob says, No, I will sell it to you. Give me your birthright. And, Jake, and Esau, the words he says, Behold, I am at the point of death. And what profit 
Will this birthright be to me? If I die, give me the food you can have, the blessing of God. We know about the Israelites as they traveled from out of Egypt. They murmured and they complained and they cried out and they said to Moses, we remember the fish we rem that we did eat in Egypt, the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. But now our soul is dried away. There is nothing at all beside this manna. This angel's food is all we have, and we want the food of Egypt. We would rather have slavery than eat the food of heaven. But we have an example that we can follow because as Christ began his ministry in the, on the earth, as he was led by the Spirit into the wilderness and suffered hunger for 40 days and then was tempted, and the devil came to him and said, turn these, bread to, these stone to bread so that you can eat. God doesn't want you to die. Just eat this. And Christ said, man shall live by the word of God and not by the physical sustenance. Daniel and his friends knew that the food being offered by the king would, by partaking of it, would actually be a symbol of worship because the food had been sacrificed to their gods. And if you ate that food, everybody believed that you were then worshiping those gods. So, prophets and kings, even a mere pretense, even just pretending to eat the food or drink the wine would be a denial of their faith. They also knew that they could not risk the effect of luxury and dissipation on physical, mental, and spiritual development. Do you see that this one step in eating that food they knew would lead, could lead, to a life of dissipation? Daniel and his associates had been trained by their parents to habits of strict temperance. What are we training our children at home? They had been taught that God would hold them accountable for their capabilities and that they must never dwarf or enfeeble their powers. This education was to Daniel and his companions the means of their preservation. You see, when they knew the purpose of God for their life, they made the decision that no matter what, we will avoid the evil. We will not let one temptation overcome us. Strong were the temptations surrounding them in that court. Luxurious court. But they remained uncontaminated. How? No power, no influence could sway them from the principles they had learned in early life by what? Study of the word and works. 
of God. Now for anyone who may be thinking, well, it's too late for me, I didn't get that education as a child. Behold, all things are made new. God is able to renew us at every moment, at every stage. Moment by moment, he is desiring to renew us and to fill us with that power. And he says, study the word and works that I do, and you will have that power. There's another interesting perspective about why the diet was such an important important question for them. And this actually has been talked about in psychology, the field of psychology. If you've heard about Maslow's hierarchy of needs, Abraham Maslow was a um, psychologist, I believe, and he established, he described why it is that people do what they do. And he, he, he figured out that there was a pattern of this motivation. And what we see, what he says, is that at the very bottom of what drives you is your physiological needs. These are the things that just make you survive. What do you need to survive? Food, water, okay? And sleep, very important. Just your very basic physiological needs. And unless you get those fulfilled, you really don't start working on the other things, such as safety. The next thing that individuals want is safety. Am I safe? Am I secure? Next, we look for love and belonging. Next, we look for esteem, that I have abilities and skills that are worthwhile, and that others can see that in me as well. And then finally, at the very top of our motivation is self-actualization. You are living to your highest potential. What I like to say is that you are living to your God-given potential. You are living for God's purpose in your life. But if you look at society today, if a nation or a person is struggling with anything at the bottom, they do not even try to get the other things. You can look at our refugees. You can look at those who are devastated by our hurricanes. They are just trying to survive. Food, water, sleep. So if King Nebuchadnezzar is prescribing the food and the drink for your physiological needs, is that going to set them up for how they seek to fulfill every other need? Prophets and kings again. The body, physical body, is a most important medium through which what? The mind and the soul are developed. So if the physical needs of your body are not being met, your mind and your soul may be having challenges in developing. And developed for the upbuilding of character. Hence, here it is that the adversary of souls directs his temptations 
to the enfeebling and degrading of the physical powers. His success here, where? In physical, his success in the physical temptations, the lusting of the physical powers. His success here often means the surrender of the whole being to evil. This was the first point where humanity fell, physical lusts. But this was the first point in which Christ succeeded. The tendencies of the physical nature, unless under the dominion of a higher power, will surely work ruin and death. The body is what? To be brought into subjection to the higher powers of the being. The passions are to be controlled by the will, which itself is to be under the control of God. The kingly power, the kingly power of reason, sanctified by divine grace, is to bear sway in the life. This afternoon, I'm going to be talking about addictions. And you will learn that 50% of you are suffering from an addiction. And the other 50% of you are prone to an addiction. And God is saying to us, use your reason sanctified by my power for preservation. Intellectual power, physical stamina, and the length of life depend upon immutable laws. Through obedience to these laws, man may stand, conquer of who? Himself, conquer of his own inclinations, conquer of principalities and powers, of the rulers of the darkness of this world, and of spiritual wickedness in high places. Do you want to surrender? Who do you want to surrender to? Do you want to surrender to the principalities and powers? No, God says we can conquer. We can conquer by his divine grace. Some keys to conquering as we wrap up. Daniel knew. He knew the scriptures. He knew that appetite is a doorway that could potentially lead to compromise in other areas. He knew the effect of our diet on our mental, physical, and spiritual health. He knew what God's commandments were, and he knew the health laws. He knew what God had said is good to eat. By the way, he lived a holistic life. It wasn't just about food. It was holistic. He also knew that there was a purpose for his life within God's overall plan. And in all things, no matter how trying, no matter how devastating, no matter how much they may break our hearts, no matter how many of our hopes and dreams are crushed, God has a purpose even in that. Finishing up, 
in the land of their captivity, these men were to carry out what? God's purpose by giving to heathen nations the blessings that come through a knowledge of Jehovah. Never were they to compromise with all idolaters. Their faith and their name as worshipers of the living God, they were to bear as a high honor. And this they did. In prosperity and in adversity, they honored God, and God honored them. So I leave you with the question, why? Why do you want to surrender? Why is this important to you? Is it because you're tired of the struggles in your life? You're tired of failing again and again? You're tired of, of just doing those things that you know you're not supposed to do? That certainly is important. Because when we come to a place where we realize our inability, our weakness, our desperation, but when we come to that place, if we do not turn our eyes to Jesus and see that he has a greater purpose for us and that he can even take our inabilities, our weaknesses, and make them our strengths, when we come to that place, then we realize that the surrender is for a greater purpose. We can surrender day after day for our own sake, maybe for the sake of our family, but in the long term, it is when we surrender for the sake of God's purposes, then we have a lasting reason. Then we have an eternal outlook. Then we are able to purpose in our hearts that we will not defile ourselves. And then God can say, I will do the work in you. Is that what you want? Is that your prayer? I pray that as you spend time this weekend praying, asking God, Lord, what am I not surrendering? What have I not given up to you? Help me to see that my hopes and dreams and desires are minuscule compared to what you have planned for me. And then tell him, work your purpose in my life. Do what you need to do so that I am living for you. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, it just boggles our mind. It's amazing to think that you, the God of heaven, you, the creator and sustainer of all things, looks down here and you sees each of us individually and you say to us, I have a purpose for you. I have a reason for why you are existing. I even have a reason for the difficulty you are going through. Lord, we want to take your promises we want to take your word and cling to them, knowing that you will work out your good in your timing, in your way. And we surrender. We give it to you, Lord. And we praise you because we will glory in what you have done.
We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.